0: think about this morning our confidence our hope our trust what we have what we have thrust our lives upon lord we confess together you you alone are our confidence you are the one we can trust god because you've never failed you've never failed everything else in our life everything we've ever trusted everything we thought would hold us up it's all let us down Lord, and even ourselves, we come in this morning knowing that, that we can't hold ourselves up. We, we aren't strong enough. And so we must look outside of ourselves. We must look up to heaven where we see you, a God, a father who loves his children. And God, we're asking this morning that you would remind us again what it, what it means to trust you, what it means to walk with you, what it means to know that you are enough. God, as, as always, as we look to your word uh, we are longing to hear from you. We are desperate to hear from you. you know, we, we come in with all sorts of doubts and fears and worries and ideas about how life works. But, but right now, God, we just cast all that down and we just ask that you would speak to us. That you would meet us in this place. Uh, open up your heart. Show us who you are. Show us the reality of, of the world as you see it. God, we, we, we need your perspective. So this, this morning we ask that you would humble our hearts, soften our hearts. Lord, that whatever you say, whatever your word says, that our hearts would respond, amen. Amen. Lord, heal us this morning with your presence. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Uh, As you're taking your seat, two things. One, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 119. Uh, And secondly, if you're a child here and you've been checked in, uh, you can go ahead and head to the back. Uh, or if you are here this morning and, and you haven't had a chance to check in your child, uh, you can do that in the lobby at this, at this time uh, as well. So like I said, we, we are going to be in Psalm 119, verses 57 through 80. We, we've been working through Psalm 119. We're spending eight, eight weeks here in Psalm 119, in the, in the longest psalm in the Bible. So it'll be, it'll be a help to you if, you if you have a Bible there open before you, Psalm 119, 57 through 80. Uh, living where we do, at the beach, at the coast, it's, 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 it's pretty normal throughout the summer, especially in into hurricane season, uh, for us to get pretty bad storms that, that seemingly just come out of nowhere. Uh, and so I'm pretty sure that, that all of us in this room have had this experience before, where it's late in the evening, maybe we're sitting around the dinner table, or, or maybe we're watching TV together as a family, when all of a sudden the lights just go black. Uh, we know that the, the power has gone out, and we can't see where we are. And in that moment, immediately, we begin to ask questions, right? Don't you, all, don't you just want to know, like, what happened, you know? Did, did a power line fall, or, or what exactly happened? And, and you begin to think to yourself, you know, how long is this going to last? Is this one of those, you know, two-minute ones, or is this one of those 24-hour ones? You know, how, what are we talking about here? And pretty quickly, somebody, you know, get up from the table or get up from the couch and begin to look for some other light source. You know, maybe you've got some candles hidden around somewhere in a, a cabinet or you've got some flashlights. Hopefully, your, you know, your batteries are good to go. Uh, when the lights get turned off like that, we pretty quickly uh, begin to reach for, for light. Uh, one of the ways that we describe times of suffering or times of trouble that we go through is Darkness. And I think the reason that we do that is because the experience that we have when we find ourselves in darkness is very similar to the experience that we have when we find ourselves in the middle of suffering. Uh, It it always comes unexpectedly, right? You never plan for suffering. You never plan for for trouble. And immediately when trouble falls upon you, you begin to ask those same questions. Why is this happening? How long will this last? Uh, And if you're anything like me, you, you, you immediately begin grabbing at something that will give you light in the midst of your darkness, something that will give you stability in the middle of your suffering, your time of trouble. Uh, the last few weeks, like I said, we've been marching through Psalm 119, and, and we've been establishing the fact that we are absolutely desperate and dependent upon the Word of God. We've been seeing week after week that God's Word is a necessity in our lives, And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to kind of hone in on one specific topic related to God's Word, and we're going to see what God's Word has to say to us in the middle of our trouble. Why is it that when when we are in the midst of suffering, we desperately need to hear what God has to say? Uh, See, here's the reality. Uh, When you and I go through suffering, immediately we begin to try try to figure out what's going on, right? The, The most basic question we ask is, why is this happening to me? And and we need help because the same exact thing can happen to multiple people, but they may interpret their suffering in completely different ways. Uh, Let me give you just three examples. So person A goes through through the same exact suffering as person B and person C. But person A concludes, our world must be out of control. I need to start taking more control over my life because apparently there is no one who looks after me. Person B goes through the same exact situation, the same exact trouble, the same exact suffering, and they conclude, God must be mad at me. See, in their head, good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, and so if this bad thing is in my life, then I must be in God's bad category. A third person goes through the exact same experience, exact same suffering, exact same trouble. It comes into their life, and they think, God it must be growing and maturing me. God must be drawing me to Himself. The same trouble, the same suffering, but interpreted in radically different ways. So what makes the difference? When when we're in the midst of trouble, when we're in the midst of darkness, when, when we're in the midst of the storm, what makes the difference with how we interpret our suffering? What makes the difference is the Word of God. The difference is that God actually speaks to us in the midst of our trouble. God actually, as it, as it were, opens up heaven and shows us from His perspective what's really going on, and that's why we are totally dependent upon His Word. So this morning, as we consider what the Bible has to teach us in the midst of our suffering, we're going to see three things, three things about what God's Word says to us when we're in darkness, when we're in trouble first today. In our trouble, the Bible teaches us to cling to God as our portion. The Bible teaches us to cling to God as our portion. Uh, At the beginning, at the head of our first stanza, verse 57 says, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Some people take money as their portion in this in this life. Uh, Some people take family as their portion in this life. Some people take success or, or pleasure or reputation. Whatever thing you point to and think to yourself, this is where life is found, that is our portion. Whatever we would point to and say, I can do without everything else. If everything else got stripped stripped away from me, but I just had this one thing, if I just had this, whatever that thing is, that is our portion. And so generally what it means for the Lord to be our portion, for God to be our portion, is for us to say having God and to have God alone is enough. That if everything else were stripped away, if, if everything else were pulled out of my life, the one thing that I can't live without, the one thing that I desperately need to survive is God himself. Over the last few years, there's a show I've watched kind of on and off called Alone. And these contestants are shipped out into these remote locations. And the idea is they're supposed to see how long they can last out in the wild. And and they're competing against other people. And the idea is they're supposed to see if they can outlast uh, the other people that are competing uh, next to them. Uh, Some of these people have lasted over 100 days. They've literally missed Thanksgiving and Christmas with their families all alone, in a remote place, all by themselves. Uh, At the beginning of the show, though, they get the opportunity to select a few items that they believe will help them survive. So some people will take knives, some people take flint for fire, some people even bring pictures of their family. And what they're saying is they're saying, out of all the things that I could grab, out of all the things that I could cling to that I think will help me survive, that I think will give me life out in the wild, these things, these items, I believe will help me live, will help me survive. See, all of us actually have to do a same kind of exercise with our lives. We have to look out and we have to, to ask ourselves, what am I going to cling to? What do I honestly think is going to give me life? What if everything else is stripped away? Would I say this is most important? This is what I need. Uh, this psalm is challenging us to, to cling to God as our portion. This It's challenging, challenging us to see that everything else can be shaken. Everything else will eventually let us down, but, but only one, the Lord, the Lord. He is enough. Now, how do we know? So how do we know if God is our portion? Uh, well, the rest of this stanza gives us an idea. Verse 58 says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. See, whatever we choose as our, as our portion is, is something that we believe will bring, bring favor and blessing into our life. So what it means to cling to God as our portion is to believe that by clinging to Him, He will give us what we need. He will provide. He will be the blessing, the ultimate and final blessing that we need in our lives. When God is our portion, we also have His commands. That might sound counterintuitive at first, but hopefully I'll explain how this works in a minute. Verses 59 to 62 It says, When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because your rules, your, because of your righteous rules. So one of the clearest ways we know whether God is truly our portion or not is if we love His commands, if we love His laws, if we delight. In his ways. Now, 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 let me be honest. I me mean, it, it it's not that far off from how we live our lives already, anyways. See, if you take money as your portion, then you will happily conform to whatever laws, whatever rules, whatever ways it takes in life to make money, to keep money, and to spend money. So, so if money is your portion, you will conform to the laws of money. If family is your portion, then you will situate your life. You will conform your life to whatever it takes to keep your family close to you. If Being popular is your portion. Then you will conform your life to whatever it takes to maintain a good reputation with everyone around you. See, whatever we take as our portion, we inevitably and gladly conform ourselves to whatever rules, to whatever laws, to whatever ways it takes to keep that thing in our life. And so the psalmist is just saying, the Lord is my portion. And if the Lord is my portion, if God is my all in all, if he is my everything, if he's the one that I'm clinging to, then to conform to his ways is my delight. To, to, To love his laws makes sense because it's what we do with everything else in our life. Another thing it means when God is our portion is that we also get to join with all the other people who have God as their portion. Verse 63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you of those who keep your precepts. See, this is one of the amazing blessings of what it, what it looks like when we cling to God, when it looks like when we grab onto him, when we make him everything to us. Guess what? He is infinitely rich. And so when we pare everything down and we say, "God, you're it." Then he actually gives us his blessings, and one of the greatest blessings is that we find a family with all the other people who are clinging for dear life to God as well. We step into companionship with all the other people who who love and worship this God. Uh, I think it's really cool how you, you can go to different big cities and you can actually find groups of people who come together every weekend and watch the games from their teams from cities like maybe down here in the south. So for example, uh, you go to New York City and, and on a Saturday afternoon, you might walk into a bar or a restaurant and every single person there is a Clemson fan or every single person there is a South Carolina fan or every single person there is an Alabama fan. It, it, it's like this little outpost of the school has popped up in the city. And y'all know down here in the South, it's the other way around, right? Right down the road, we got, you know, the Steelers bar where all the people that have come down from Pittsburgh gather together. And it's like on a, on a, on a Sunday afternoon, it's, it's as if you've transported to Pittsburgh for, for the afternoon. What we see about the church, what we see about God's people is that when enough people get together who are clinging to God, that actually creates a little outpost of heaven. See, we're not home yet. We're not where we're supposed to be, but when enough people come together who are saying, God is my all in all. God is everything to me. Then we form a little outpost of that heavenly place where all God's people will be. This is our call. This is our privilege That when we say to God, you're everything to me. You're all I need and all I want and all I have. He actually unleashes his blessings upon us. And one of those most sincere blessings is the family of God. So when the psalmist considers all the riches that he has in God, he he ends this stanza in verse 64 saying, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statues. Guys, this is why God must, must be our portion. Everything else in this world is fading. Everything else in this world moves. Everything else in this world will will let us down. But this is the one thing that is steadfast. And it is the enduring love of God. That the love of God is like this lighthouse. (laughs) That that in the midst of every storm, in the midst of every darkness, in the midst of every trouble and suffering, it shines. And it, it reminds us who our God is. It reminds us that He is enough. It reminds us that all we need is found in Him. And so here we are, we all live in this world and and, and the whole world's in front of us and and the world is constantly bombarding us with ideas about what we ought to take as our portion. You know, take money as your all in all, take success as your all in all, take family as your all in all, take, take anything, take everything, take something. And the word of God cuts through and says, no, 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 all those things will let you down. All those things will ultimately fail you. The Lord is your portion. And if you grab onto him, if you cling onto him, then you have in him infinite riches. See, see, it's easy to think that, well, what you're saying is if I take God as my portion, then I have to cut all these other things out of my life. Not necessarily. See, if I take God as my portion, he actually teaches me how to interact with all the other things in my life within the healthy boundaries that he has set. And then if and when, in, in God's wisdom, he does remove those good things out of our life. We still have all we need in Him, but if we've put our hope in something else, if we put our trust in something else, and it get, it gets ripped away, then we have no hope. We have no life. We've lost everything. So the Bible shows us; it speaks to us in the midst of our darkness, showing us to cling for dear life to the God who is all in all. So, second this morning, second, our trouble in our trouble, the Bible teaches us to submit to the goodness of affliction. The Bible teaches us to submit to the goodness of affliction. Verses 65 through 67 say, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So consider, consider again that the same suffering, the same trouble can land down upon two, two different people. And in one person's life, that suffering drives them away from God. The affliction comes and they think, how could God possibly be real or good if he allows this in my life? And it drives them away from God. But the other person experiences the exact same thing, the exact same trouble, the exact same suffering, and it drives them towards God. It drives them to cling to God. What makes the difference? David Pallison, uh, who was an extremely gifted Christian counselor, uh, thankfully before he died, he left us with a number of books. Uh, I would highly recommend, by the way, if you're someone who is working through a season of suffering, a season of darkness, uh, his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering. God's Grace in Your Suffering. Uh, I would highly recommend it. Here's what he writes in this book. He says, We cannot read God's favor or disfavor by assessing how troubled a person's life is. We cannot read God's favor or disfavor by assessing how troubled a person's life is. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you cannot look at someone's life and say that based on their trouble, based on their suffering, that God is either for them or against them. It doesn't work that way. That's typically the way we tend to think. We, we tend to think that, oh, you know, if things are going well for me, it must mean God is happy with me. If things are not going well for me, it must mean God is, God is mad at me. He's saying, if you read the Bible and you, you see the story of the scriptures, you cannot make that assessment. There were plenty of good, godly, faithful people, not least of which Jesus Christ, who endured immense amount of suffering. So you cannot look at somebody's life and say, oh, they have trouble in their life. It must mean God's not for them. He continues. Suffering is the catalyst of faith, but it also exposes and destroys counterfeit faith. Afflictions expose false hopes invested in imaginary gods. Such disillusionment is a good thing, a severe mercy. So he's saying, yeah. If our faith really is in the true God, then suffering can drive us to a deeper, richer, stronger faith in that God. But if our faith is not in the true God, if our faith is in a counterfeit, if we have grabbed as our portion anything other than the one true living God, then suffering, affliction like nothing else, teaches us that those things cannot satisfy, that those things cannot hold us up, that those things cannot give us the life that we long for. Back to the quote one last time. David Pallison says, to lose what you're living for, to lose what you're living for when those treasures are vanities invites comprehensive repentance. We can, we can read God's favor. So he said, you can't read God's favor or disfavor in in, in the trouble in their life. You can't do that. That's not how it works. But he says, you can read God's favor or disfavor by noticing how a person responds to affliction. how you respond, how you react, what you do when you find yourself in darkness. So here's his overall point. Trouble does drive some people away from God. It does. It drives them away from God, and sometimes the reason it drives them away from God is because they have come up with a false God, an imaginary God. The God they had invented was not real. They expected certain things from this God that he had never promised. And so their suffering drives them away, but for other people, Suffering is what draws them to God. I bet if we went around this room and we all began to tell our stories, every single one of us who have clung to God, who have run to Jesus, who have opened up our life to this God, I guarantee you that there would, there would be in our story some season of darkness, some season of affliction, some season of suffering where we found out what it meant for God to have a severe mercy, that it hurt in the moment. It was hard. It felt like our life was being ripped apart, but it led us to Him. It led us to Him, and we found in Him more than enough. And so the psalmist says, before I was afflicted. So before my suffering, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I didn't know you. I didn't realize what I had in you. But then your suffering came, and it was a severe mercy. It hurt in the moment, but praise God. Praise God. He showed me where true life was really found. The verses 68 and 72 continue. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So what do we have going on in this story? Well, the psalmist is somebody who is trying to follow God. He's trying to obey. He's trying to live his life according to God's word. But what he's being met with is people around him who lie about him, who smear his name, who mock him as he is attempting to follow God. His God. Uh, I think we would all agree that's not exactly what we would want in our lives. To have people around us who rather than encouraging us, rather than uplifting us, they there are people around us who put us down, people who lie about us, people who smear our name in the mud. Nobody wants that. But that's what catches us by surprise when the psalmist responds, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Huh. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Now, here's the deal. Uh, There is a a cultural fabrication of this truth. Uh, There there is a counterfeit to the Christian response to suffering that's very similar. It's it's very close to what the Bible teaches here, but it's slightly off. And, And it might sound something like this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or it might sound something like this. Every setback is just a setup. You see, you see, it's close. It's, it's close. It's, it's, it's very similar to what the Bible's teaching here, but, but, but it's slightly off. And it goes wrong in two places. First, sayings like this actually give us false hope. See, sometimes, guys, sometimes a setback is just a setback. And if we were to tell people that the, the biblical teaching is that every setback is a setup. We would be setting people up for confusion. See, wh- What happens if the, the sickness doesn't get better? What happens if the promotion never comes? What happens if the advancement that I was expecting actually just leaves me right where I am? No, see, sometimes, sometimes a setback is it's just a setback. But here's the other place it goes wrong and probably the more important place that it goes wrong. These sayings like this, the story that they teach about the world is actually the wrong story. You know, It's really close to the Bible. It's really close to what the Bible teaches. But it's just far off in this, that it teaches us that the purpose of life, the meaning of life, is to succeed. It teaches us that the purpose of life, the point of our existence, is progress, is moving forward. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. So what does the Bible teach? Well, both verses 67 and 71 get at it. Look how helpful this is for us. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And verse 71 says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So yeah, our suffering is good. Our affliction is good in this, in that it draws us out of the way of this world and it conforms us to the word of God. So the psalmist can say, yeah, it was good that I was afflicted. It was good that this affliction came into my life, but not because it was setting me up for some future success. Not because it was creating progress in my life where I was going to level up to the next level. No, he's saying it was good for me because it conformed me to God's word. And this helps us see that God's idea of what the goal for our life is, is something different than the world's idea for the goal of our life. God's idea for the goal of our life is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So there are these conflicting stories that you and I live in. We might call one story the story of progress. In this story, the purpose of life is success. And that means the way that this story describes sin is anything in our life that presents a weakness. Anything that brings, brings an obstacle into, into our life is seen as a sin. The way that this story views the world is that it is a stage for us to make personal advancement in this life. The way that this story views faith. So how how does the story of progress view faith? How does it view the church? How does it view the Bible? Well, it sees it as a good thing so long as it is used for our personal growth. And sadly, and most tragically, the way this story explains salvation, the story of progress explains salvation, as you and I creating a more disciplined life so that we can continuously overcome all the obstacles in our way. This is the story of progress. That what we really need is the next gadget. What we really need is the next supplement. What we really need is the next life hack. What we really need is the next book about our business that's going to help us lead people better and get more and do further This is the story of progress, and it's not the story of the Bible. So what is the story of the Bible? Well, the story of the Bible teaches us that the purpose of this life is for us to glorify and enjoy God forever. And so that means what sin is, according to the Bible story, is when we turn away from God. It's when we think we can live without Him the way the Bible presents the world in which we live, what is this world? What is this world in which we find ourselves in? It is not a stage for us to advance. It is a theater for the glory of God. And so how does the Bible story view faith? Faith is not seen as something that we use to make ourselves better. Faith is seen as the all-important central hub of our life through which everything else is filtered that our whole life becomes an opportunity to worship. And then most importantly, the way the Bible describes salvation. Salvation is not me figuring out how to be self-disciplined so that I can get ahead in life. Salvation is being reconciled back to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that God can remake us into the image of His Son. These are competing stories. These stories contradict. These stories cannot coexist together. And all day long, you and I are being forced With a decision, which story will we live in? Will we get sucked into the story of progress where we think that the purpose of life is advancement and we think that the biggest problem in our life is our weaknesses and we think that what salvation is is us figuring out how to get ahead? Or will we see that, no, 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 what Jesus came and died for was to bring us back into relationship with God so that God would begin to transform us and that what a beautiful life is, what a glorious life is, what a life that has meaning is, is not a life that is successful and powerful. That a meaningful life, a glorious life, a beautiful life is a life that is fully dependent upon God. See, and that's why, guys, sometimes what doesn't kill you actually makes you weaker. Sometimes the most important important need in our life is that we would become weaker. Sometimes we're like Jacob. Jacob was a man in the, in the Bible who was a strong young man. He was crafty. He was sneaky. He had always gotten his way in life by manipulating people. But then he has an encounter with the living God. And the living God knocks his hip out of his socket, and for the rest of his life, he has a disability. But God changes his name to Israel. That for God to use him, for him to step into God's purpose for his life, he needed to become weaker. And so often, the afflictions that come into our our life, that is the purpose. That we might actually become weaker, that we might become more dependent, that we might realize that we have no hope except for God. So which story are we living in? Are we living in the story of progress or are we living in the story of the Bible? Are we living in the story where salvation is us doing everything we can in our own power to get ahead or are we living in the story where our only hope is Jesus Christ and Him crucified? When God meets us with this truth in the midst of our affliction... And we can honestly join the psalmist and say, it is good for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Underneath this goodness, underneath embracing the goodness of affliction, there's a deep truth that we have to feel and know and believe. And that leads us finally this morning to our third and final point. In our trouble, the Bible teaches us to embrace the sovereignty of God. In our trouble, the Bible teaches us to embrace the sovereignty of God. Uh, let's start just with verse seventy-five. It says, "I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you." Have afflicted me. Now, maybe you've noticed as we've been working through the psalm, maybe you've noticed that, that the, the psalmist has been describing his season of trouble, his season of darkness, his season of affliction. And so far, the way he's been describing it is that there are people around him who are lying about him. There are people around him who are smearing his name. There are people around him who are mocking him as he is attempting to follow God. But here, when we get to this third stanza, rather than pointing out to the other people in his life who are saying, these people are afflicting me, these people are against me, he finally points out at who the sovereign actor is over his life. Yeah, it was these people. Yeah, there were people against me. Yeah, there was trouble in my life. But ultimately, it was God. God is the one who afflicted me. And that presents somewhat of a problem for us. What does God's sovereignty really mean? It means that everything that comes to pass comes to pass according to the will of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that God works all things works all things according to the counsel of his will. How do we make sense of this? They're doing it, they're hurting him, they're afflicting him, but he's saying it was God. They meant it for evil. They were hoping he would crash and burn. But God was doing it for his purposes. God was doing it and he was faithful. In his affliction. How do we make sense of this? Well, like with so many other things in the Christian life, we the only place we can go is to the cross of Jesus Christ. See, it's at the cross where the person who deserved to suffer zero gets put under the wrath of God. And there are people who took Jesus and falsely accused him and condemned him and slapped him and whipped him and nailed him to a cross But the Bible tells us it was all according to God's plan. And we see in in the book of Acts that the the people who did this, the people who hung Jesus on the cross, they were responsible for their actions and at the same time, God was sovereign over it. And so it's not a contradiction. For, For example, in verse 69, for him to say, the insolent smear me with lies, and simultaneously, in verse 75, for him to say, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. All things that come to pass. So once we've established that this stanza is about God's sovereignty, then it it opens up the whole section for us. Verse 73 says... Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Uh, This is the foundation of sovereignty. It is the acknowledgement that we have a maker. We have a creator. We have someone who has fashioned us. And if he fashioned us, if the eternal hands fashioned us, then he knows exactly what we need. The one who crafted us, the one who made us, The one who knows everything about us, he knows exactly what we need moment by moment. Uh, Recently, I've been trying to teach Benjamin, our son, how to um, make paper airplanes at the house. And, you know, sometimes we'll make this nice, you know, beautiful, perfect airplane. And, you know, you'll throw it around a few times and then, you know, not, not to say any names, but somehow it gets crinkled or folded or mashed in different ways. And then all of a sudden it won't fly anymore. So what do you have to do? You have to take it, and you kind of have to perform a little airplane surgery on it and kind of, kind of fix it so, so it'll fly again. Uh, this morning, our kids in, in our elementary uh, children's ministry program, they're actually going to do this exercise. They're going to make a paper airplane. And, and, the, and the point is, you're getting the sense of what it feels like to fashion something, of what it feels like to, to make something, what it feels like to put something together. But see, the, the magnified difference... <laughs> between us putting together something like a little paper airplane and God holding billions of people in His hands at the same time and managing it quite well? Can we even fathom what it means for Him to be a sovereign God, for Him to know exactly where we need to be creased, exactly where at times we need to be pushed, exactly where you and I need to be pressed upon at times in our lives so that He will form us into the image of His Son, Jesus. We can trust this sovereign God because He made us He fashioned us. He formed us. And no one knows what we need more than he does. So then in verse 76 and 77, it says, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. So there might be somebody here this morning, you might say, I just don't see how it's comforting at all to believe that God is the one who afflicts me in my suffering. I don't believe it's comforting at all to believe that God is sovereign over the trouble in my life. But see, it's just, it's just the opposite. See, it's only if God is, is also sovereign over my affliction that He can also be sovereign over my healing. It's only comforting if God is sovereign over the injustices, injustices in my life to believe that He'll be sovereign enough to hold people to account for what they've done to me. It's it's comforting to know that the very God who is sovereign over my suffering is also sovereign over my salvation. And that's why he, he says in verse 78, "...let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts." See, God's sovereignty is what secures God's justice. The fact that God is the governor over all, the fact that God is in control over all things, the fact that there is nothing that's slipping outside of His plan means that we can trust that he will make all things right in the end. We can trust that at the end, of the, the end of time, he will settle the score. We can trust that while it might feel to us like he's not doing anything or like that he's not fixing things, no, no, no. He has a day circled on the calendar when he will bring about perfect justice in this world. And that's what it means to have faith in a sovereign God. Now, there's one thing that this psalm teaches us about what God might be doing in our suffering. You know, at times that's the biggest question. Why? Why is this happening? What could God be doing? Maybe, maybe you believe it. You're like, and I believe that he's working. I believe that he's over this, but what could he possibly be doing? Well, we're never going never to get the full answer, but, but there's at least one thing this psalm teaches us about what God might be doing by sovereignly bringing affliction into our life. Verse 74 and 79 74 says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And verse 79 says, Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. One of God's sovereign purposes in bringing us into a season of darkness, in bringing suffering into our lives, is to show off to the other people around us that the light that God gives us in the midst of our darkness is enough. That as we cling to His Word, as we actually find hope in the one thing in this world that can offer hope, that it preaches a sermon to the, to the dark world around us who desperately need A life raft who desperately need the hope of God. The Puritan Thomas Brooks once wrote this. He said, A gracious soul secretly concludes, As stars shine brightest in the night, so God will make my soul shine and glister like gold when I am in this furnace and when I come out of the furnace of affliction. Uh, now, no, no, this is going to be so elementary for some of you that, that you're going to maybe think it's comical, okay? But, but, but I don't know. It felt important for me, for me. It felt exciting for me. Maybe it will be for you, too. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. But, but, but the stars actually don't go in and out. Did you, did you guys know that? That right now, if you were to walk outside, you know, look up, the, the stars are there. The only reason we can't see them is because it's daylight, And if it were to be daylight all day long, then then we'd actually never see the stars. We'd actually never get to enjoy the stars. The only reason that we ever actually get to enjoy the stars is because it goes dark. And in the darkness, you you can see them. You can see the light of, of the stars. And so what Thomas Brooks is saying, he's saying, look, none of us want darkness. None of us want suffering. None of us want affliction. But sometimes God's sovereign purpose in bringing us into darkness is so that we can show this world what it looks like to have hope in a real God. To have hope in something that is anchored to eternity. To be able to shine the light, not of our advancement or our progress or how great we've done at life. To shine the light of what it looks like to depend fully upon Him. So sometimes one of God's sovereign purposes in bringing us into darkness is so that we might be an encouragement to others. And I know, this is what I know, just, think, just take a minute this afternoon think back over your own life. Think about the different people that have been an encouragement to you. As you've watched them suffer well, as you've watched them cling to God's word, as you've watched them hold fast to God as their portion when everything was falling around, and man, it gave you life again. It showed you that, yeah, you can depend upon God. You can trust his word. Think about that. So that the next time you walk through suffering, you might know, you know, I don't know why God's doing this. I don't understand everything about it, but here's one thing I know. I get the chance. I get the chance to show people how good my God is, how steadfast He is as I hope in Him. So if we were to summarize uh, this whole passage together in, in a package, how would we put it? Well, the question that we're asking this morning, what does the Bible, what does God's Word have to say to us in the midst of our trouble? What does it teach us in the midst of our suffering? And if we could sum it all up into one phrase, here's how we might put it. In the midst of our trouble, the Bible teaches us that we are completely safe in the good hands of God. In the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our affliction, we are completely safe in the good hands of God. We're safe in His sovereign hands. We're safe knowing that whatever afflictions come into our life, they are for our good. Not because we're living in some story of progress where there's some false illusion that it's gonna help our business or it's gonna make us uh, help our reputation. No, 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 no. We know God's faithfulness to be good in conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus. And ultimately, we know this, that if everything else is stripped away, if everything else is ripped out, if all the things that we thought we could find life in get ripped out from underneath, but we have Him, we have enough. We have all we need. We have more than enough in His infinite riches. So more than anything else, when we walk through darkness, here's the key. Verse 68. This is the key to understanding the light of God's Word in the midst of our darkness you are good and you do good to believe that he is good and that everything he does is good to know that whatever I'm in whatever circumstance whatever I'm experiencing I'm safe in the good hands of God let's pray God this morning we celebrate the fact that in order to save us, in order to bring us back into relationship with you, you are willing to send your own son down into our suffering. That He took on the greatest affliction this world has ever known, that we might be brought back to you. God, I ask that you would set us free from this false story, set us free from the false story of progress in which we envision our life as this stage for us to advance and grow. And God, that you would release us into the freedom of your story, the true story of the Bible, where you are the God of grace who is transforming us and making us more and more glorious after the image of your son. God, help us in our weakness. Help us in our suffering. Help us in our doubts. Meet us with your goodness. Show us the comfort of the promises in your word. God draws to life in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.